please turn with me for the scripture reading this morning to the 26th chapter of Matthew. And I'd like to take as our reading verses 36 to 46. Speaking to you this morning on the centrality of the cross, we look at Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Matthew 26 at the 36th verse. Hear now God's word. Then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane, and saith unto his disciples, Sit ye here while I go yonder and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and began to be sorrowful and sore troubled. Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even I can watch with me. And when he went forward a little and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass away from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he cometh unto his disciples, and findeth them sleeping, and saith unto Peter, What? Could ye not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again a second time he went away and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away, except I drink it, thy will be done. And he came again and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying again the same words. Then cometh he to the disciples and saith unto them, Sleep on now and take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Arise, let us be going. And behold, he is at the hand who betrays me. And thus far the reading of God's word. Two years ago, I had two children graduate from high school and I wanted to do something really special and so I had saved my money and all my frequent flyer miles and everything I could possibly pull together and we went to Hawaii. And a friend of mine who knew I was going to Hawaii said, don't take any work with you. Um, he knew me well enough to realize that even when I'm on vacation I'm doing the sorts of things that could be related to work and so he made me promise that I would not take any work. And so I kept my word and I didn't put anything in my suitcase or carry anything with me on the plane. And I decided at the airport I'd get a novel to read. That's really unusual for me. I didn't even know what to purchase. But I knew everybody thought this John Grisham fellow was, you know, kind of good reading. So I picked up the Pelican Brief and got on the airplane to Hawaii. And I had just a great time in Hawaii, of course, being with my children. But as I had time to myself, just sitting on the lanai or on the beach and reading this novel. Makes a philosopher feel guilty to read novels. It's too much fun. <laughs> it's too easy. <laughs> but it was a great time. And so I took an interest in John Grisham this last year when we went on vacation. I got another Grisham novel, The Client, because I knew that movie was coming out and I read it when I was on vacation. So now I read all these novels. Uh, Obviously going downhill, right, Roger? <laughs> Becoming literature of all things, if you call that literature. Anyway, the movie The Client came out, and since I had enjoyed the novel, I went to the movie. And you know the story, right? They always do this. They change some things from the novel. Not terribly. In fact, I thought the movie was probably the best of the three uh, Grisham movies that have been put out. I enjoyed the movie even as I enjoyed the novel, but I did see the difference. Now I'm going to ask you a question. If we were to make a movie of the life of Jesus, or if we were to give some kind of a summary of the teaching of Jesus, if we were to boil Christianity down and some editing were to take place, as it took place in the movie that I'm talking about, if we were to rearrange some things, could you conceive of editing the Christian message of the story of Jesus so that the cross was taken out? Can you imagine somebody saying, well, that's really kind of a depressing ending. People won't be very happy with that. Let's, uh, let's not have the cross in there. But we could have a really exciting movie about the presentation of the, uh, of the gospel, 
and we just don't have to get around to the cross itself. Well, those of you who know the redemptive message of Jesus Christ, who believe the gospel with all your hearts, you find the very prospect of that horrifying, don't you? It is horrifying. And yet it happens. It has been happening for quite a while in this country, well over a hundred years. And it's very prevalent in our day and age to have a Christianity that is a cross-less Christianity. A Christianity that is really a matter of um, social interaction. The reason the Christian church exists, you would believe, if you went to some churches, is so that we might all have a place to gather, to help one another, to love one another, uh, to have a place for our kids to do things together, whatever it may be, but mainly for the sake of uh, a society that interacts with one another. And there's a place for that. We need one another in the body of Christ. But it makes no sense somehow forgotten the cross of Christ. Christianity is in many places seen as a social movement or perhaps a social reformation society. Some churches have actually become that and have been called that, social reformation societies. Societies that exist for the amelioration of the injustices of this world, that take care of those who are poor or starving, the homeless, orphans, pregnant mothers, whatever it may be. And obviously there's a place for that. A Christianity that has no compassion, that doesn't reach out to the world, is not a Christianity true to the character of the founder. Nevertheless, a church that aims to reform society and has forgotten the cross of Christ has no right to call itself a Christian church. Christianity can be looked upon as a philosophy, a philosophy of life or a philosophy of reality and how we know the things. I'm very familiar with that aspect of the Christian faith because in apologetics, that's what it always comes down to. We have a philosophy that is a better philosophy than any others. Although it's not really fair to say a better philosophy because we think it's the only philosophy that doesn't make nonsense out of life. That the only alternative to the gospel of Jesus Christ is foolishness. Which is interesting because Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that the world looks upon the cross as foolishness. But God captures you see, the foolishness of the world, those who are wise. And he shows that those who think they are wise are really fools. So here you have the world calling us foolish, and from our perspective, we look at the world as foolish. In apologetics, we have enough of that this week. I'm not going to preach to you on that today. But in apologetics, we emphasize the philosophical strength of the Christian worldview. That's very important. But apologetics that is only about a philosophy of life an apologetics that reduces to kind of a deistic philosophy that can make sense out of science and logic and ethics is not Christian philosophy because it's forgotten the cross of Christ. And this is what I'd like to get across to you by looking at this text in Matthew's Gospel where Jesus, before he is betrayed and then goes to his trials and then finally to be crucified, prays about what is coming up. Now, many people who preach on these texts emphasize the weakness of the three who went with Jesus, their weakness, not able to pray even an hour, not able to even stay awake, to wait with the Lord while he prays. And that part of the text is important. I don't mean to subordinate it, but that's not what I'm going to preach on. I think you could apply that. It's something maybe you want to think about especially if you have a temptation to, uh, or a tendency to fall asleep during your devotions. And the reason you're smiling is because you all know what I'm talking about. You know, we like to pray early in the morning or maybe before we go to sleep at night. And it's so easy just to lie back on the pillow and begin to talk to God. And the next thing you know, it's hours later and you wake up. The spirit sometimes is willing, but the flesh is weak. You should be mindful of that. And I'll leave it to someone else to preach to you about how guilty you should feel that you don't bother to exercise yourself to godliness to watch. However, this text is not a general text about people falling asleep while they pray. Because it has a special significance that Peter and the other two could not abide with Jesus and pay attention when he is going through the emotional crisis of his human life. 
their fault here is not the general fault we have. Their fault is a very special one. And you can see that by contrast if you look at the intensity of Jesus as he prays. Matthew portrays Jesus as going off by himself three times to pray. Uh, it may very well be that it was only three times. I'm sure it was at least three times. But you need to be aware that often in Semitic imagery, this is a literary feature, when three is mentioned, that means repeated. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that he three times beseeched the Lord to take this thorn out of his flesh. And virtually all commentators will tell you that doesn't mean he had three separate prayers. That is the Semitic way of saying, I, I kept going back, back, back to God with this prayer. And of course, in Paul's case, as you know, the thorn was not taken away immediately because God wanted to teach Paul a lesson. And Paul learned that lesson, which he reports to us, that God's grace is made perfect in our weakness. Now Jesus is not praying as Paul does about a thorn in the flesh that he wants removed. But Jesus does pray with intensity. He may have prayed many times that night. Certainly at least three times. Matthew, when he gets to the account of the third prayer of Jesus as he counts them, tells us simply he prayed the same words. This Jesus who taught against vain repetition in prayer prayed the same words. You can count on the fact it was not an empty, futile prayer. It was not vain repetition. It wasn't Jesus going through the prayer book mindlessly saying the same words over and over again. Jesus prayed the same words because this was crucial. This was intense. This was emotional and very important to him. Let's look at what Jesus prayed. Before he prayed... Jesus confessed to the three who were with him that he was sorrowful and sore troubled. He said in verse 38, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. And I want you to appreciate what this means. The disciples undoubtedly know there was something different about Jesus. He was very, not beside himself, that image is not correct, but Jesus was not himself, not the Jesus they knew not the one who was calm and under control. But now Jesus is very sorrowful. He's very depressed. He's perplexed, sore, troubled, the American Standard Version says. Well, that's putting it lightly. Because the text says that he was troubled and sorrowful unto death. And because you know the gospel story, you may interpret that verse to mean, and you'd be wrong, but it's natural enough, I mean, Jesus is about to die. So he's sorry about dying. And he's going to pray about that, so that would make sense. But that is not what the expression means. He's not sorrowful in view of death. He was so sorrowful, he was about to die from sorrow. I, for one, am glad that verse is in the Bible. Because though I can't by any way compare my sorrow to Jesus and its intensity or its purpose. I know what it is to be sorry and to feel so heartbroken you think, how can I live? I'm just so beat up inside, so confused, so perplexed, so hurt that you sorrow to the point where you think you're going to die. And the Bible says the Lord knows that feeling. He knows it ten times, a hundred times more than anything I've ever felt. He was sorrowful to the point of dying from sorrow. But he's the Son of God, we say. What could possibly get Jesus that down, that upset, that perplexed? Well, if we read his prayer, we understand why he had such exceeding sorrow. Verse 39, he went forward a little and fell on his face and prayed. The Bible indicates to us there are a number of different postures in prayer. I, for one, don't believe any one is prescribed. I don't agree with churches who think that you must kneel in order to pray. Some churches believe you must stand in order to pray. The Bible says that. Some have you stand and raise your hands when you pray. Others sit. We sit while we pray in our congregations in the Presbyterian church often. 
The Bible also says that some prayers are so intense that people put their face right to the ground. And Jesus was in that posture of prayer, sorrowful to the point of dying. And you ought to be interested, what would he pray? What would be so straining within him? What would be so painful, so fearful, that he put his face to the ground and pray? This was his prayer. My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass away from me. The one who is praying this prayer, this is somewhat mystifying, maybe. The one who's praying this prayer has all power in heaven and earth. He could walk on water and still the storm. He could heal the lame, make the deaf hear. He could raise the dead. He was so powerful and all-knowing that when his enemies thought about things across the room, he could walk over and say, I'll tell you what you're thinking. When people wanted to gang up to kill him, he could walk through the midst of them and no one touched him. He was the sort of man who could walk into the temple, the commercial center for making money in the banking way by being a money changer, and single-handedly, with a scourge of cords, cast people out, and twice do it. Jesus was no meek and mild, wilting violet. Jesus was a man's man, and more than that, he was the Son of God. He had divine power. And here we see Jesus, fearful, sorrowful, perplexed to the point of dying with heartache. And his prayer is, Father, can you take this away from me? This Jesus who prays this prayer from all eternity, according to the Bible, as God decided to save a people for himself, this Jesus, though he wasn't called Jesus then, was willing to come into this world and to be the mediator between God and men. To be the one who would lay down his life for the sins of his people and make atonement. In that sense, for years and years, an eternity past, Jesus, the Son of God, has been in preparation for this very thing. And then he came into the world. And now, as he's about 30 years old, everything in his life is narrowed down to this particular place. That's how important this act of dying on the cross is. This is not new to Jesus. You can imagine somebody who has agreed to be helpful, to perform some kind of project for somebody else, and on the, the, the verge of having to finally do what he's called upon, the person who sent him says, by the way, you're going to have to die in the process. And then he's shocked and he goes, boy, I'll have to think about this. But that's not Jesus. Jesus has been thinking about this for years. In fact, Jesus didn't get into this situation according to the Bible until he finally overcame the advice, bad advice, of all of his followers and set his face to Jerusalem. And he said, I go to be betrayed and, and to die. And they look at each other and say, what are you talking about? Peter says, you're not going to die as long as I'm with you, Jesus. Count on that. You know, let him get past Peter. Judas is so upset with this that he decides he'll finally make some money off the deal. He's fed up with a man who will not become the Messiah as he understands it. And so he betrays Jesus. He tells the Jewish leaders, when he's away from the crowds, I'll tell you where he is because I know where he prays. Well, that in itself is quite a testimony to Jesus, isn't it? Judas knew where to found him, find him. Because Jesus had such a habit, regular habit of prayer, that Judas, when he decides to do the most despicable act in human history and betray the Lord of glory, it was the piety of Jesus that enabled him to betray him. But the point is, Jesus knew this day was coming. Jesus all his life, I don't mean looked forward to it in anticipation and fun, but he looked forward to it in that he knew that was the reason he came into this world. Jesus did not come into this world, as some theologians will tell you, because God wanted to be in communication with men. It wasn't that simple. There have been people who have actually said that if man had not fallen into sin, the incarnation would have been necessary anyway, and that is absolutely wrong. 
the one and only purpose for which God the Son took on a human body that he might be the Son of God. The one and only reason was that he would be able to suffer and die in our nature and there make atonement for sin and do what no mere man could do and bring us back to God. The incarnation is a wonder, no doubt about it. It's a wonder of nature. How is it that a virgin could conceive a baby and give birth to a baby? It's a wonder of nature that somehow a man, a mere man and a little baby could be God the Son joined to our nature. It's a miracle of nature, but it has nothing to compare with the wonder of God's grace that the reason the incarnation took place is so that Jesus would go to the cross. No, the Son of God should become incarnate to be glorified, to be gladly welcomed by men, to be received. People should bow down to Him, listen to His every word, be available at His beck and call, live for His glory and His purpose, be members of His kingdom. That's why the Son of God should come into this world. But men did not treat Him that way. They treated Him in a disgusting way. They argued with Him. They plotted against Him. They hated Him. And even when He did good to people, they despised Him all the more. And the hatred of men toward the Lord of glory was so great that the Bible tells us on the day that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead... Imagine this. They plotted against him to kill him. Read your Bibles. The day that he showed that he was the Lord over life and death, they said, let's kill him. As though that'll do any good if he's the Lord of life and death. That's how irrational, how hostile men were in their opposition to the Lord of glory. Chased from one place to another, misunderstood, lied about, Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem to die. The disciples knew better. They said, no, you can't go to Jerusalem, Jesus. This is not the right time. Jesus said, for the very reason that you think I shouldn't go, that's why I must go. Because this is the time. From all eternity, through all my life, in all of my ministry, it's been a preparation for this time that I would be seized, that I would be falsely accused, turned over to the hands of sinners, crucified and slain. And so Jesus knew this was coming. This was not a surprise. Jesus was not a wimp. Jesus had all power available to him. And we see Jesus on his face in prayer saying, God, is it possible? Take it away. If it be possible, take this cup from me. The metaphor of the cup, Jesus is referring to the cup of suffering and death. He says, Father, if you can take the cup of suffering and death away, do so. On an earlier occasion, the mother of the two sons of Zebedee had come to Jesus and asked that her her babies be given a special place in the kingdom. Mothers are like that. I'm not indicting her. Many of you would probably do the same. They all loved Jesus. They wanted to be close to him. And what mother wouldn't be proud that her sons are called to the ministry? And they're with Jesus. So one day she pulls Jesus aside and she says, Jesus, when you enter into your dominion, When things turn the right direction and you're in full control, I want you to remember my sons. Put them at your right hand and on your left. Because they love you too, Jesus. And Jesus' answer is a fascinating one. He said, woman, are they able to drink the cup from which I will drink? Do her sons understand this? Yes, Lord, we can drink from that cup. I'm not sure they understood what the cup was at all. I can't prove that. My reading of the text is they're totally in the dark, what Jesus is talking about. What they're getting at is, and people are like this when they want something, I don't care what it costs. Yeah, I'll do it. Just tell me. Sure, you want us to drink from some cup? 
Give us the task. We'll do it, Jesus. We're all for you. On another reading, they had some idea that the cup was a metaphor for suffering, and they said, sure, we can suffer for you, Jesus. We'll do it. But whichever reading you accept in that point, there's no doubt that they had no idea what kind of suffering, what intensity of suffering, or maybe had no idea that it would be suffering at all. They blithely say, and so Jesus says, well, the bad news is you will drink from it because my sorrow will become yours. And if you will be as faithful as you claim you want to be as a leader in my kingdom, if I suffer, believe me, you will suffer too. Jesus returns to this theme in the upper room before he goes to Gethsemane. And in John's Gospel, we're particularly told Jesus' long instruction to his followers. One gets the impression, that's more than an impression, it's pretty clear from the text, the disciples do not catch on at all. We know this because when Jesus uses a figure of speech about um, taking a sword with you, because in some journeys you've got to really be prepared to defend yourself, the disciples run and they say, hey, we've got two swords. We're ready, Jesus. And Jesus at this point, one of the saddest verses in Jesus' uh, uh, teaching in the New Testament, Jesus says, that's enough of this. In fact, in Greek, it's just one word, enough. Jesus said, you're just not going to understand until it happens, so let's go. But anyway, as he's giving them this, what appears from human standpoint, a futile lesson about the significance of what's to happen, he says a disciple is not above his master. And if the world has hated me, it's going to hate you. And if the world persecutes me, it's going to persecute you. Can you drink of this cup? Oh, sure we can. They had no idea what's to come, but Jesus knew. He always knew what that cup was. He knew it was bitter and painful. He knew this cup would entail his separation from his Father, the breaking of communion and the bearing of the sins of the world and all the agony of hell was in that cup. And now Jesus is on his face praying, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass away from me. But what sorts of things are possible? With God, all things are possible. Isn't that what the Bible says? With God, all things are possible. That means, on that reading anyway, which is a misreading, on that reading, if all things are possible with God, and Jesus says, if it's possible, let this cup pass, then the cup could pass. Do you follow me? God could have had another way of doing whatever he wanted to do. God's hand is never forced. God's not under compulsion. Nothing outside of God can require him to do something. Nothing stands above him as higher than him in authority. Nothing's more powerful than him. He's sovereign and free. He determines all things. And with God, all things are possible. And yet, the Bible tells us that if, although that is a summary, is fine enough, if you take that literally, you can make nonsense out of what the rest of the Bible says about God. Because with God, all things are possible, does not translate anything that can be done, God can do. So let me play a little game with you here. Are you aware of the fact that there's some things I can do that God cannot do? Does that sound surprising? It's true. I'm not at all proud of the fact, but I can lie. I have lied. The Bible says, with God, it's impossible to lie. He cannot lie. Not only that, I'm able to deny myself kind of person that I have portrayed myself as being or the character that I've had or what I you know hope to be and promise to be I can deny that I can go contrary to it in fact I can do things that are not in my best interest sadly in my life I've had some experience making decisions that didn't prove to be in my best interest I can deny myself but the Bible says if you look at 2nd Timothy chapter 2 it is impossible for God to deny himself in fact, in the Greek it says, he cannot deny himself. 
He's not able. He doesn't have the power to deny himself. And so now I want you children to listen, of course, to the whole sermon, but if you're just in and out here, remember this much, because when you grow up, you're going to have smart Alex Snyd people who say, oh, you think God can do everything? Well, can God make a rock so heavy you can't lift it? Budding philosophers, these. Can God make a rock so heavy you can't lift it? Well, if he makes such a rock, he can't lift it, so then he's not God because he's supposed to be able to do everything. And if he can't make a rock so heavy that he can't lift it, then he can't make that rock, so he can't do everything, so then he's not God. So, it's what we call the horns of a dilemma. Which, whichever way you go, God can't be God. Pretty cute. I'd like to believe that that is left at the child's level of apologetics. Except those of you who were in my seminar this last week with Michael Martin, who is a philosophy professor at Boston University, in the major attack on atheism and our, on theism and a philosophical defense of atheism in our generation, he uses the same kind of conundrum as one of his arguments against the faith. And so you children can answer this philosophy professor. I'm going to give you the answer. If somebody says, can God make a rock so heavy that he can't lift it, tell them straight out, do not hesitate, don't meditate on it, say, of course not. Of course not. They say, well, then he can't do everything. So what made you think that he could do everything if you include things that deny himself or that are sinful? If God made a rock that put him out of the business of being God, he would deny himself. And so, no, he can't do things which are contrary to his nature. It's just that simple. So other than denying himself, lying, doing immoral things or logically impossible things, God doesn't make round squares. God doesn't create married bachelors. Ever think about that? Is that pretty wondrous? God never made a married bachelor. And that's because the concept itself is nonsense, like a round circle. So God doesn't lie, he doesn't contradict himself, he doesn't deny his nature, and he does nothing immoral. You with me? But other than that, he can do anything. Now back to Jesus. Jesus says, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass away from me. And so let's ask ourselves, would it be a logical contradiction for Jesus not to go to the cross? Of course not. One can very well say, a man named Jesus, born to Mary, lived a life, did these things, add all the details you want, but part of the set of details does not include, and he died on a cross in Palestine. So it was logically possible. And yet God did not take the cup away. Well, but God can do anything except logical impossibilities. Well, what did I teach you? He can do anything that doesn't deny his holy character. But then again, the holy character of God does not, in one sense, require Jesus to die. In fact, somebody might think the holy character of God would very easily not have Jesus die because he had no sin for which he had to die. He was guilty of nothing. Jesus could say to his opponents, which one of you indicts me of sin? What an amazing man who could say that. Anybody who thinks you can accept Jesus as a good teacher but not the Son of God is not looking at what Jesus teaches. Good teachers are not so arrogant as to say, I'm sin free. But Jesus said that. And somehow his contemporaries were willing to believe it. There, had some, there was a convicting evidence about this man's life. That when he said, anybody wants to point out a sin, a defect in me, let's hear it. And nobody could speak. And so in one sense, God would not have re been required to see Jesus die. It wouldn't have been a contradiction of his righteousness to have Jesus, an innocent person, not die. Well, now I'm perplexed then. Why did Jesus have to die? He said, if it's possible, if it's possible, take this cup of suffering from me. We have to conclude that it was not possible. How could it not be possible if with God all things are possible? 
Let's go back to that other verse that says God cannot deny himself. The reason why our Savior suffered with this kind of agony and perplexity and fear is because there was a time many, many years ago when God sought out our first parents and he made a promise to them and God never breaks his promises. That's another thing you can do that he can't. You can break your promises. God can't. And when Jesus found Adam and Eve, and in what condition did he find them? Hiding in the bushes because of their guilt. What have you done? God said. There's an interrogation where the answer he knew full well. But by way of raising their consciousness and teaching them and leading them to confession, he said, well, what have you done? Why are you running from me? Why are you hiding from me? And then, as you know the story, God promised that in the process of judging mankind and sending them from the garden, he would nevertheless give to the woman a seed, a particular seed, one who would come that would crush the head of the tempter. But in the process of becoming that hero and that victor, he would suffer a terrible and painful wound to his heel. And that isn't a lot of information, and I can't go through the whole Old Testament, but if you read through the Old Testament, more and more and more information is given. And so much information is given that after Jesus dies and is raised from the dead, he meets two of his followers on the road to Emmaus. And they're perplexed. He wants to know why. And they say, well, this one that we thought was the consolation of Israel, the Messiah, he has come, but then he was put to death. And Jesus says, didn't it behoove the Messiah to suffer and then enter into his glory? What's Jesus referring to? He's referring to all the way back in the garden. Don't you remember God's very first promise said that the Messiah would have his heel bruised. And if you read the rest of the Old Testament, fill in more details, all the more you should have, of course he was going to suffer. All the Old Testament is a story of God's promise that he would see to it that we are saved. But our salvation would cost dearly. Someone would come into this world to be the Messiah who must suffer and die. And God does not deny himself. Have you ever wondered whether God could save us apart from Jesus dying on the cross? There are lots of groups who think that he can they believe that all God wants us to do is be sorry. And if we say we're sorry for our sins, then God can from heaven, just like an indulgent grandfather, say, okay, kids will be kids, I forgive you. That's not the biblical picture of God's holiness. The wages of sin is death. As God said to Adam and Eve, in the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. And they did. Spiritual death leading to eternal death and final separation from God is inevitable for sinners. And that's why without the shedding of blood there can be no atonement. There can be no remission. There's no way around that judgment apart from someone else dying in our place. So God being true to His own holiness and justice promises way back when and in many ways, throughout the ages, I will send someone who will die. And in so doing, provide that perfect sacrifice that puts an end to all other sacrifice and satisfies my justice and above all, fulfills my love so that these people that I've chosen to belong to me can now come to me without the impediment, without the alienation of their sin. God had promised that. And Jesus in his sorrow and his knowing of the agony of the cross and all the more of the agony of separation from his heavenly Father, Jesus says, if it's possible, let this pass from me. And what's God's answer? It is not possible. 
The cross cannot be avoided. And that's why I've called this message the centrality of the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ cannot be peripheral in our Christianity. It cannot be at the margins. It cannot be a detail that's incidental out there. It must be at the center because it's at the core, or if you will, it's the very essence of Christianity. If you were to edit the story of Jesus or the message of the gospel in the way that John Grisham gets edited, and you were to happen to take out the cross of Christ, it's not as though you'd have another version of Christianity. You wouldn't have Christianity at all. You'd be taking away its very essence. It's not possible that Jesus not go to the cross. Jesus' prayer, of course, is, My Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass away. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. In his human nature, knowing of the suffering and the sorrow and the death and the alienation from God that he was facing, in his human nature, Jesus would say, My will is, let's call it off. We're on the verge of this, and it's so horrible to think about Jesus' prayer was so intense that Luke tells us in his gospel that when he prayed, he sweat, as it were, drops of blood. That's intense praying. Jesus, in his agony and anticipation of this death, says, if it's possible, but not my will, yours. And so Matthew reports to us that the second time Jesus came back to pray, and then the third with the same words according to Matthew. He said, My Father, if this cannot pass away except I drink it, thy will be done. Unless I drink it. He said, If we cannot accomplish the salvation of those that you have chosen to belong to you without me drinking of this cup of suffering and death, I'll do it. The New Testament does, does not give us the option of presenting a cross-less Christianity. Yesterday at our conference, at the end of the day, one of the questions that was asked had to do with uh, people who say they are Christians, but then they don't believe in Jesus, um, either as the Son of God or the way of salvation or what have you. And I uh, responded to that question by reminding the audience that J. Gresham Machen wrote a book years ago entitled Christianity and Liberalism, in which he said there are two versions of Christianity on the market today. They are really two quite different religions, but they go by the same name. And if there's a dispute over who has the right to use that name, he proposed we follow the analogy of corporate law. He said when people in a corporation get into an argument as to who has the right to the name and to the uh, materials and uh, uh, proceeds of that corporation, you go to court and you look at the founding document. And you let the founding document be the standard by which you determine the owners of the corporation. Who owns the name Christian? Machen said only those who according to the founding documents Teach what Jesus taught. And according to the founding documents, as you've just seen in this one short paragraph, there can be no cross-less Christianity. It's at the very center of our faith. There are no less than 19 different predictions in the Gospels where Jesus said he will die. You'll find that at 31 different places, some are repeats, but nevertheless, 19 different predictions. The New Testament speaks of the death of Christ over and over and over again. The count is very high. I know that there's at least 11 different Greek expressions for the death of Christ. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 1.18. of Christ is central to the message of Christianity. In fact, Paul takes it to define the gospel itself. 
1 Corinthians 1.18 For the word of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us who are saved it is the power of God. In the 17th verse, Paul had indicated God sent him to preach the gospel. And now he says the gospel is the cross of Christ. In Philippians 3.18, the enemies of God are defined in terms of the cross of Christ. Philippians 3.18. For many walk of whom I told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. The enemies of God are those who will not accept the cross of Christ. This is a dreadful sentence, and I say it with caution, but I mean it somberly, and I want you to take me seriously. Those who proclaim a Christianity without the cross of Christ are God's enemies. Not just unbelievers who will have nothing to do with the cross of Christ, but those who pretend to be religious but don't want the cross of Christ are the enemies of God. How are the adherents to the gospel understood in the New Testament? Look at Romans 6, verse 3. Romans 6, 3. For are you ignorant that all we who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? You can't get rid of the death of his death. Indeed, the cross sums up the very essence of Christianity. Look at 1 Corinthians again. Now verse 23. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified unto Jews a stumbling block and unto Gentiles foolishness. Chapter 2, verse 2. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. And then hear Paul's testimony in Galatians 6, verse 14. But far be it from me to glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified unto me, and I unto the world. Paul says, Be it far from me that I would find glory in anything, in anything. Nothing else can fill the blank. If you want to know the glory of my life, it's the cross of Christ. The only part of the life of Christ that our Savior bid us to commemorate repeatedly was His death. That's a surprising thing because just about anybody in a conservative church would tell you, you can't just preach the death of Christ, you must preach His resurrection as well. And that's true. Because Jesus did not simply die to pay the price of sin. He was raised for our justification. He was vindicated. He was exalted to the right hand of God and has become Lord over all. That too is part of the Gospel. But the interesting thing is, Jesus does not bid us in the ritual of Christian worship to celebrate His resurrection and ascension. He tells us when we come together to worship, we should come to this table and remember what? I gave my body and I shed my blood for you. It is the death of Jesus that makes Christianity Christianity. Not by itself. If He only died, then as Paul says, we're miserable, our faith is vain. But without the death of Jesus leading to the resurrection and exaltation, there is no Christianity to celebrate at all. Now, if you'd like to challenge me after the service, I'd be happy to discuss this with you. But my challenge to you would be this. Name me one other religion of the world where the essence of the religion is the death of its founder. Now, you can give me religions that have martyrs. Oh, I know that. But these martyrs die incidentally, if you will. They happen to die as just part of the history of their getting a message out. And it's sad for us that there are such martyrs, I believe. Joseph Smith, I think, would have been discredited and his followers would have disbanded if people had not broken into a jail and taken him out and lynched him. 
his martyrdom turned out to be the great explosion forward for the Mormon church. So I know that there are religious leaders who have died as martyrs and their martyrdom is important to the history in terms of the development of that group. But no other religion in the world makes it central to its message that their leader die. Only Christianity has that. And Jesus says, not only is it important, not only is it necessary, not only is it something that I cannot avoid, it was not possible that this cup be taken away, he says, I want you to drink of the cup of the new covenant repeatedly to remember this, to keep it central when you follow me. The modern world is quite willing to pay homage to a simple carpenter who lived compassionately and taught beautifully and was betrayed shamefully and died in a very courageous way. The modern world will pay that man homage. But in the New Testament, Christ is not presented simply as one more of the noble army of religious martyrs throughout history or in the heritage of the Jews. In the New Testament, the death of Christ has atoning significance. This isn't just a bad thing that happened to a good man. It was God's plan that this happened to this good man, that those of us who are so bad could be made right with God. That's the distinctive heart of our religion. And no other religion matches that feature. The unique Christian emphasis is upon the cross as the saving event of personal necessity and in the New Testament cosmic significance. And the New Testament Colossians chapter 1 Paul tells us that the reconciliation of the whole cosmos depends upon the cross of Christ. Modern Judaism teaches salvation by penitence. Be sorry for your sins. God will freely forgive you. Without an atonement price being paid. A neo-Orthodox Presbyterian scholar of our century, G.S. Hendry, in the Gospel of the Incarnation, by the way, that title gives everything away. The Gospel of the Incarnation. The Incarnation is wondrous, but it is not the good news. According to Dr. Henry, it is, or Hendry, pardon me. Christ's death, he said, is simply part of his mission to bear God's antecedent forgiveness to the world. Jesus came into the world to bear a message, you're forgiven, you're forgiven. And the cross is just part of his mission, but it has nothing to do for the accomplishment of his mission. He came as someone to declare forgiveness, not to make forgiveness possible. Indeed, for some modern theologians, Christ's death did nothing to secure redemption at all. Because God already settled the redemptive question, Jesus simply exemplified forgiveness. The atonement was something eternal, will be told. It wasn't even an event that took place in regular historical time. And what the cross is, is just a faint glimmer of what already took place in eternity. Well, I know people can wow you with their rhetoric and talk to you about all these abstractions. But none of this is Christianity. It's put forth in the name of Christianity. It may have the outward vocabulary of Christianity. It may even use the book, We Christian Jews. But it's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. And any time you may be tempted to think otherwise, remember Jesus on his face in prayer. Is it possible that this should pass? And the answer was no. If you do not drink this cup, there can be no salvation. In Hebrews, the ninth chapter, verse 23, the author of Hebrews shows that he understands this very well because he speaks of the necessity of the purifying work of Christ on the cross. In verse 22, the author says, And according to the law, I may also say that all, I may almost say all things are cleansed with blood, and apart from the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Therefore, therefore, if apart from the shedding of blood there is no remission, therefore it was necessary 
that the copies of the things in the heavens should be cleansed with these. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices. The author says, all those purification ceremonies of the old covenant were actually typical of a purification that has to take place in heaven in the true tabernacle of God where he truly resides for all eternity. But he said, on earth these things may be cleansed with sacrifices temporarily, but the heavenly things required a greater purification, nothing less than the death of God's own Son. And it's amazing to me, the modal term that is used here is that it was necessary that this should take place. Well, what kind of religion is this? We worship someone who died as a loser. We worship somebody who died as a criminal. We worship somebody who wanted not to have to drink that cup, but it was necessary that he do so. Well, I want to end this morning by reminding you that although the world sees nothing but shame in the cross of Christ, the Bible presents it paradoxically and ironically as glory glory beyond our fondest imagination that God should love us so much that he says the centerpiece and token of that affection is that my son will die so that you can live. In John 12, the 27th verse, Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause came I unto this hour. Father, glorify thy name. There came therefore a voice out of heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The multitude therefore that stood by and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice has not come for my sake but for yours. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, this is an image of crucifixion, being lifted up on a cross. If I be lifted up in crucifixion from the earth, will draw all men unto myself. And by this, but this he said, signifying by what manner of death he should die. God said, I have glorified my name and I'm going to glorify it again. And the way in which I'm going to glorify myself is by lifting you up from the earth, seeing that you be crucified. And in all of history, no one will know such glory as that kind of redemptive love. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, how can we thank you enough for glorifying yourself by saving us? We don't see any glory in that, Lord, because we know that we don't deserve your love. We deserve nothing but alienation. We deserve your wrath and your curse. We do not live according to your holy law. We do not emulate your character. We are so inconsistent in our following of you. There is not worship about us in every manner, in every way, in every moment of our lives. We do not show that we belong to you, and in very many ways we compromise our testimony. Sometimes we are cowardly when we have the opportunity to speak for you, and many times we are weak when we should resist temptation. We do not pray without ceasing. We do not look forward to worship. We live for ourselves. We are selfish and bitter and often unkind. The fruit of your spirit is many times not evident in our lives. Lord, why would you care about us? And how could you receive glory by sending your son to the cross? This good news defies our imaginations, defies all description. God forbid that we should glory in anything but the cross of Christ. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you were willing to drink that cup. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that though 
you prayed with agony about it passing, you were willing to say, Thy will be done. Thank you for saving us. Do help us to keep you in the forefront of our minds, not just as we come to the Lord's table, not just when we come to church, but Lord Jesus, help us to live for you every moment of every day and to never be ashamed of that which the world despises, to never, ever be ashamed of your cross. For we pray in your blessed name. Amen.